I did a really lovely throat gurgle there, Jen. If it has picked it up, I'm going to amplify it and keep it in for you. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 285 of the Standard Issue pod scene. I'm Mickey Noonan and I'd just like to remind all of our female listeners that Love Actually is not a sweet romantic comedy and a Christmas classic. It is a film that categorically hates women and isn't shy about it. Do not watch. Anyway, Merry Christmas. Why are female listeners? Why not all of them? No, particularly women are the ones I see going, oh my goodness, I'm so excited. I'm going to watch Love Actually. Women whose opinion I respect on so many things love this film and it hates us so much, which is why specifically female listeners. As my beloved would say to me, you've internalised the fuckery. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of pressure on us to internalise the fuckery, Jen, would be my response to that. Yeah. I can't believe Kath talks like that. <laughs> I can. Have you heard her daughter? <laughs> I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I'm looking forward to my mother's special Christmas song. Hang on. I've not heard about your mum's special Christmas song. Can you sing it to us? It makes it sound like this is something endearing that she's made up like for our family. It's, it's not. It's because she is the way she is they just confuse her christmas songs like completely (laughs) so for some reason she thinks that slade's merry christmas everybody and that i wish it could be christmas every day are the same song when slade meets wizard yeah a mashup she sort of sings a mashup of those two songs like jive bunny to the to the tune of (laughs) paul mccartney's (laughs) Simply having a wonderful Christmas time. And it sort of goes, everybody, Christmas time is here. I love it. We all say every year, it's not a fucking song. What are you singing? She wants us to find it. It doesn't exist. We can't find it on YouTube. It doesn't exist. We live in a world where Mr. Blobby was a Christmas number one, Hannah. And if people still bought records, I would buy Mary Dunleavy's Simply Having a Wonderful Christmas mashup. Everybody. Christmas time is here. <laughs> Sounds like something Lyra would sing. Get a lot of mashups from that kid and just incorrect words. I mean, it does sound much the same as me, mother, if I'm honest. <laughs> you know that Master's, but I don't know if you do know this, but Master's Spencer's has a brand called Per Uno. Yeah, They've had yeah. it for like 20 Familiar years. Familiar with its work, yeah. My mum calls it Pro Uno. <laughs> <laughs> That's what she thinks it's called. And let's not forget, she also thought that Scott and Bailey was Bakewell's art. <laughs> Pro Uno sounds like... I don't know what that sounds like. It's like It sounds like a far-right nationalist party in I Belgium. Did, Mickey, words out of my mouth. I was going to say, it sounds like he's running Argentina at the minute. Certainly. Oh, God. Or like a sort of hair regrowth medicine or something. I don't think <laughs> yeah. it's... Yeah. I feel like a hair regrowth medicine is also running Argentina at the moment, to be honest, That's a Jen. very good point. <laughs> That's a very yeah. good point. In further festive news, I'm Jennifer and I now own three sparkly jacquard miniskirts. Are they all gen made? They are all gen made, yes. And I'll be wearing one for our get together on Wednesday. Oh. You'll be delighted to learn. And you'll be delighted to learn, Jen, that I googled what jacquard miniskirt was. <laughs> well, they're just three separate pictures of Jen. <laughs> yeah. Basically, yeah, just all off my Instagram. Just some shiny shit that I've put together. I don't think you can have enough, to be honest. I could also wear something sparkly for our get-together. What about you, Hannah? No. Do you own any sequins? <laughs> no. <laughs> Let's change that. I've got a flashing L pat. If I bring it, will you wear it? No. 
No. <laughs> Simply everyone having a wonderful Christmas. It's here. <laughs> <laughs> You've got it, Mickey. Woo! Coming up, I talk to the legend that is Robin Davidson, solo adventurer and author whose wonderful new memoir, Unfinished Woman, explores unexpected fame, the slipperiness of memory and the impact of a mum's suicide also contains camels. Thank God for that. What more do you want? <laughs> I'm going to be talking to one of Wales's finest, actor Lisa Palfrey, about new BBC drama Men Up, as well as that time she worked with Christopher Guest. Christopher Guest! And Pride. Because, you know, I bloody love pride. In turning off the blocks, the referees are what now? And did Hannah's heart loathe till now? We find out in Rated or Dated as we watch 1998's Shakespeare in Love. But first, and on that note, (laughs) vomits. Stops vomiting, vomits again. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, our regular route through the file-marked Humans, for fuck's sake, Mm. or as it's more generally known, the news. Mickey bought me some gloves that have for fuck's sake on the fist and the other fist. It says what the fuck, but I've actually worn them so much, Mickey, they're in the wash, so I can't hold them up today. Oh, careful with washing those, they're cashmere, they need to be on a very cold wash. Oh, I hand washed them. Oh, bless you. Look at you. Sorry, I bought you a job. That's what I bought you. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for that. Now, Mick, I don't know if you remember me talking about this before, but back in the mid-90s, when the Tory party's 18-year stranglehold on the UK was coming to an end, Armando Iannucci's Friday Night Armistice offered pretty big cash prizes to audience members if they could name which MPs held which cabinet posts. (laughs) The point being, such was our disillusionment and apathy, and such was the rate of reshuffling, that we'd lost track of who ran, for example, the Home Office. So I thought we could replicate that here, Mickey, if you're up for that. Up for winning some big cash prizes. Oh my goodness, it's only because I know you don't have any big cash that I'm going to play along because I don't think I'm going to be a winner. Okay, let's start with a topical one or one that's suited for us. Ho, for 20 pence, 20 whole pence. I'm excited. Is Minister for Women and Equalities. I don't know. It was Maria Miller, like, eight years ago. It's, oh, oh, wait. Uh, um, oh. Uh, oh, I had it and it's gone. No, it's gone. Okay, it's, I thought this was one you get, which is why it's only worth 20p. Kemi Badenoch. I did know that. See, it was there and it went, oh, bums. I mean, to be fair, that's not her only job title. Her full job title is Secretary of State for Business and Trade, President of the Board of Trade, Minister for Women and Equalities. I'm not quite sure why we're in there with trade. but <laughs> I think we could make a it. good guess as to why we're in there with trade, Hannah. Assets. <laughs> this one's not a cabinet position, but for 30p, 30 whole pence. Can you imagine what life-changing money that is? I can't, Hannah. It's too I'd much. like you to name any of the people who have the role of deputy chairman. The good news for you, Mickey, is there's five of them. The bad news for the country is there's five of them. I like that you're offering me 30p because one of them is 30p Lee, isn't it? Lee Anderson. That is it. Well spotted. Lee Anderson, you've got 30p. That money's safe. That money is safe, Mickey. Oh, am I allowed to phone a friend for any of these? Because they won't fucking know either. (laughs) (laughs) The other ones, should anyone be at home be joining in, are Jack Lepresti, Nikki Aiken, Luke Hall and Matt Vickers. Who the fuck? Who the fuck indeed? I don't think they're real people. I think you just made them up, Hannah. 
Next up, there's a whole pound at stake here. Oh, blimey. Secretary of State for Education. Oh, she was she was doing stuff recently. I talked about her. She was annoyed that she wasn't getting more praise for schools crumbling around our children's ears. Uh, yeah, but her name has, has gone. It's been deleted from my memory banks. Okay, that's a shame. You're 30p safe, but it could Thanks. have gone up dramatically there. Gillian Keegan. Of course, of course. Okay, and the last one, and the prizes really do go up very dramatically here, for one million pounds. Whoa! <laughs> Who is the Minister of State for Disabled People? Oh, see now... I know this is a trick question, but I'm not getting that million pounds because... There isn't one. Mm. Indeed. No, Mickey, you can have the million. It's yours. It's yours to enjoy. A million and 30p. Let's all hear it for Mickey. <laughs> Yay. You can stop clapping now because, yes, you heard me. There is no Minister of State for Disabled People. And disability rights campaigners are justifiably angry that Downing Street is not going to appoint a new dedicated Minister of State for Disabled People. Scopes Director of Strategy, James Taylor, said to The Guardian, what kind of message does this give to Britain's 16 million disabled people? That in the middle of a cost of living crisis, we are now less important. I realise this was a rhetorical question and that I'm not exactly an expert, but I'm going to have a crack at answering it. Yes, (laughs) <laughs> this mess- the message totally is that this government sees disabled people as less important. I think if you'd offered me a cash prize for that answer as well, Hannah, <laughs> I'd have probably nailed it. I mean, just last month, Jeremy Hunt was talking about stripping them of benefits if they weren't actively seeking work. And while I'm aware of the argument that many disabled people are discriminated against when job seeking, and that should stop, I agree with disability rights campaigners who call it a cunt's plan. Oh, no, that was me. But I'm pretty (laughs) sure many of them were saying it under their breath. Mickey, final question. What job does Jeremy Hunt hold? He's Chancellor. He is Chancellor, Mickey. But sadly, that's the correct answer. And you lose the million pounds. And 30p. Do I get my 30? Is that gone You get to keep your 30p. You get to keep your 30p. But the very depressing fact that Jeremy Hunt is is at the helm means that you have lost. Yeah, we've all lost, Hannah. We're all losers in this game that none of us signed up for. Mims Davis has been appointed Minister for Disabled People alongside her brief for social mobility and youth. To be clear, it is not a cabinet post, but I'm going to leave it to the opposition to describe why this is a step backwards and indeed downwards, so, you know, actually quite dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that is that is a falling hazard. Vicky Foxcroft, the Labour MP and Shadow Minister for Disabled People, said it was outrageous. It took the government so long to finally agree to appoint a Minister for Disabled People. She added, when they finally do, they have demoted the role to Parliamentary Undersecretary of State and the role was previously Minister of State. Disabled people deserve better than this. Absolutely. It's such a low bar to deserve better than, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah, choosing what to cover this week was a little bit like choosing which sandwich made of shit, served on bread made of shit and shat freshly into my mouth. I most wanted to eat. Hold your loved ones tight, people. It's rough out there. Anyway, this week's Mickey Choice piece of shit is Michelle Moan. But Mm. hey, people, no judging, please. 
the former Tory peer made it clear that she's only a piece of shit who lied and lied again about being the beneficiary of £60 million in profit from a PPE contract at the height of the Covid crisis when us plebs weren't seeing our family in order to protect our families to protect her family. Do you know what this reminds me of? Once, when I was uh, working at a local newspaper, we had a court case in which a guy was done for drink driving and he went into court to say that he would never, ever have drunk driven if he wasn't so drunk. <laughs> that was his <laughs> oh, defence. Fucking hell. Yeah, I've got more sympathy for that guy, to be honest, and I really fucking <laughs> hate drunk drivers. You know, to be fair to Michelle Moan, she has now sort of apologised. But also, to be fair, you can still cunt right off me. While it's never going to be shocking to, well, I'm going to suspect any of us, that a Tory minister or peer can't say the word sorry unless it's to save their own fat cat skin. Moan making herself out as the victim makes me want to vomit into her lying face. Indeed. I'd like to vomit into her lying face as many times as she lied. That seems fair, right? Wow, that's like Team America. Yes, Team America or Family Guy. You you will know the skits that we're referring to, listeners. Exactly that, Hannah. In an interview with the BBC's Sunday with Laura Koonsberg programme, Moan claimed her life had been destroyed by allegations about their PPE profits, even though we've only done one thing, which was lie to the press to say we weren't involved. <laughs> yeah, you heard her. Her life has been made a misery by press intrusion because of rumours that she was lying about her involvement with PPE MedPro, a company that held UK government PPE deals during the COVID pandemic, which isn't fair because she was only lying about her involvement with PPE MedPro, a company that held UK government PPE deals during the COVID pandemic to avoid press intrusion. (laughs) Seriously, you couldn't make these fuckers up. The Department of Health and Social Care has since issued breach of contract proceedings over the 2020 deal on the supply of gowns, and millions of gowns supplied by the company were never used by health services. In response to the interview, Labour's Wes Streetin hit out at those he said had wanted to make a quick book at someone else's expense during the COVID crisis. Referring to Labour's plans for a COVID corruption commissioner if it wins the next election, he said his party's message is, we want our money back. And on potential wrongdoers, he said, don't worry, we will find them. I'm really hoping he did his best Liam Neeson at this point, but could neither confirm nor deny this. I'm hoping he had his hands on his hips and some sort of cape trailing behind him. That did happen. I can confirm that. Absolutely. Uh, I should watch the news more. (laughs) They've really upped the game, Hannah, in a bid to get viewers. (laughs) I'm guessing if anyone needs to speak to Moan about this further, she'll hopefully have a little fucking respect for the general public and so will not be making her way back to the House of Lords. Perhaps she'll be on a yacht. Sorry, her husband's yacht, bought with a profit from a PPE contract at the height of the COVID crisis. Please respect her family's privacy at this difficult time. Her life's been destroyed, Mickey. Destroyed. Destroyed. Can you imagine having your life destroyed by something that happened during the COVID crisis, Hannah? No one can relate to that. No one. Not at all. So, Mickey, if I assure you it's good news, can we talk about throw up for a bit longer? I'm a little bit scared because this literally makes you throw up. So, I mean, crack on, mate. It's not my throw up, to be clear. Okay, yet. (laughs) Scientists believe that they may have discovered the exact cause of morning sickness, the pregnancy kind, not (laughs) the Christ wanted to drink red wine on a weeknight kind. And as is usually the case, once you know what the actual problem is, the easier it is to find solutions. Mm -hmm. 
In a study published last week in Nature. That makes it sound like you just found it in a bush. (laughs) (laughs) Like porn in the old days. (laughs) Well, Nature does sound a little bit like people standing around naked, doesn't it? Anyway, (laughs) fully clothed researchers from the University of Southern California. She doesn't know that, listeners. She has no idea what they were wearing. (laughs) The University of Cambridge. People in Cambridge always keep their clothes on. Anyway, they said that the production of the hormone GDF-15 in the placenta and a woman's sensitivity to it determines how severe sickness will be. In extreme cases, this can lead to hyperemesis gravidarium, which I'm sure some of our listeners will know is extreme, often debilitating morning sickness, which got a fair amount of publicity when Kate Middleton suffered from it. Now, there have been a lot of attempts to lessen morning sickness with varying degrees of success the most notorious being thalidomide Mm -hmm. but these scientists are keen to point out that by finding out exactly what causes the sickness they will be better able to tackle it rather than just mask the results that's good and it appears that women who are exposed to lower levels of gdf 15 before pregnancy experience more severe morning sickness leading researchers to speculate on two ways forward either finding a way to lower levels of the hormone or to expose women to it prior to pregnancy, both of which sound like they might have their drawbacks, but hey, I'm not a scientist. What? Watch this space. Oh, that is good potential news, I think. And, you know, I'll take it. More news next year. I can wait. (laughs) Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we look at the headlines and even though we know the journalist who wrote the article didn't write the headline, it tells us all we need to know about the media's attitude to women. And that attitude is, who dap, don't care. Now, it is not news that women's names are often absent from news stories about them, but it's such old news, I've sort of become accustomed to it. I'm sure we all have. And that's not to say, as you know, I've not raged many times in this section about how mainstream media stories around domestic homicide ignore the woman whose life has been ended to tell us more about what a good bloke her husband slash partner slash ex was when he wasn't killing his wife slash partner slash ex. But it is much more pernicious than that, seeping into all aspects of women's lives, even the celebratory stories. Mother of three, poised to lead the BBC! Wow, is that how they chose her? (laughs) Rhymed, yeah, well, according to the Telegraph, I think they just like that it rhymed. That was when Rona Fairhead was set to become chairperson of the Beeb board back in 2014. That was years ago, though, Mick, I hear you cry. The world has caught up, it's moved on, women are people in their own right now. Arsenal star Jorginho pops the question to Jude Law's ex, shouted Today News last week. Well... That doesn't tell me much about the lucky Jude Law X in question, does it? Uh-huh. No, it does not. I mean, that could be almost anyone, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we both dated him. <laughs> you were terrified the whole time. Ooh. Any more info, celebrity world news? Arsenal star Dorginio proposes to Jude Law's baby mama. Right. Oh, okay. So the Jude Law X in question has had a baby, which counts you and I out, Hannah. I mean, good for her. This is like a second quiz. <laughs> Well, you know, it's the end of year. We we love a quiz at the end of year. I mean, good for her. That is some classic womaning right there. I am still a little shy on the details as to who she is, though. Any help from you, OK Magazine? Football icon gets engaged to Jude Law's ex in stunning proposal. 
I mean, I see we've lost his name now too, equality in it, <laughs> but at least we know we made an effort. The Mirror, right. Surely The Mirror will tell me who this enigmatic, newly fianced woman with a child is. <laughs> Arsenal footballer Genio engaged to the voice star and Jude Law's ex. It kind of sounds like he's proposed to two different women there, but cool, cool. At least she's actually got something of her own. Still no name. Okay, last attempt. <laughs> You're the one! Arsenal star Giorgino gets engaged to stunning wag Catherine Harding and shares intimate snaps of proposal. Finally! Her name! Catherine Harding, there she is! Congratulations on your engagement to a footballer, Catherine. Well chuffed for you. And thank you, <laughs> checks notes, The Sun. What? So, the Sun? Yeah. It's 2023 and I'm cooked, mate. Better luck next year, women! Hello, Hannah here. It's the 19th of December and I am joined by actress Lisa Palfrey. Thank you so much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure. How are you? Yes, I'm all right, thank you. How are you? Like I say, it's the 19th. Christmas is is soon upon us. How How are your plans going? Yeah, I'm good. I'm really good. I'm enjoying this Christmas. I'm making it far more subdued than last year. Yes, I'm enjoying getting into the, you know into the festive season. I went on holiday at the end of November and then I've been and then I had flu for two weeks. So I've kind of just sort of oh. come to and gone, Oh Christ, it's Christmas. I <laughs> I need to run around and do stuff. Coming up over Christmas, Men Up, an excellent one-off TV show on the BBC, which means that you and I are going to be talking about erections, something that I didn't think we'd be doing. We will probably talk about erections, yes fallacies and the like. <laughs> because it is based on a 1994 trial of Viagra that took place in Swansea. And if that doesn't sound like Christmas fodder, I found it very, very warm, very, very funny. Were you surprised when you read the script, the sort of tone of it? Well, I was obviously very intrigued as uh, to read it. But what I was struck by was Really, the, the the wonderful balance between the comedy of it and the poignancy of it, really. It's really rather beautiful in many ways. It goes on this journey, this journey with these five ordinary men from Swansea. And back in the day, there wasn't anything to correct erectile dysfunction. There were pumps and some awful hooks they used to put in painful places. So it really was revolutionary, but... The heart of the piece is what really, really, um, I was drawn to really how human it was and also very funny. I agree. I think it says a lot of stuff about a lot of other stuff. For example, yeah. grief and how men interact with each other and how, well, how poorly they interact with each other quite often. Yeah, completely. And, and you know, this show is set back in the 90s. I always find that's really difficult to believe that that's 30 years ago. Like, yeah, too right. <laughs> you know, like last week. But, you know, how far have we come with the way men speak and the way they talk about emotions and feelings and worries? You know, there's still a big problem with that, I think, with men speaking out about, about their innermost feelings and fears. Definitely. And what struck me about, about your character, Teresa, is yeah. how far we've come in that sense because she is a middle-aged woman, and I can say this as a middle-aged woman, you know, she's interested in puzzles and sex. And, you know, woman after my own heart. (laughs) For such a long time, middle-aged female characters were seen as, you know, 
almost dead, almost 90. And then there's sometimes a bit of a swing black where they're seen as just over 20. And they are neither of those things. And she yeah. is exactly, to me, what a middle-aged woman is. She's She's had a lot of life experience, but she's not nearly dead. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, I, when I first read Teresa, I just fell in love with her instantly. There aren't many parts you get like that where you just think, this is mine, I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to play this part. She's real. She's human. I, too, love a crossword. I'm a bit of a cryptic crossword girl. That is mine and my husband's delight on a Sunday. Do the everyman from the Observer. Uh, we finished it last week, which was um, quite, <laughs> quite unusual. She's been widowed a long time, but she's interested in sex and she would like to pursue a relationship where that is on the table, you know. Their relationship grows, I guess, from a lonely heart sort of situation and they just speak on the phone and do these crosswords together. But Teresa is definitely up for something more than that, you know, and... Um, she makes that quite clear to Colin. It sort of blossoms from there, really. Colin, of course, is Stefan Rodri. Yeah. This is just absolutely rampacked with some of Wales's finest. Alexander Roach, Katie Wicks, Mark Lewis-Jones. It is always a joy to go back to Wales and to work with the Welsh cast. I've known Steph since I was about 20 years old. We're old, old friends. We've played partners a lot in plays and short films and all sorts of things. So, in fact, if you Google Lisa Palfrey husband, Steph comes up. Oh, really? He's not, he's not my husband. <laughs> you know, working with Welsh crews and always going back home is always a joy. And I think there's something in the water in Wales that produces some very fine Welsh actors, you know. Agreed. Where that comes from, maybe from the Estevods. In fact, I've just been to see my grandson, Billy, in a a school play, he's four and a half. And it was like, Wales has got talent, you know, all these little kids singing and dancing. And there's something about that in Wales, which is the performance side is nurtured from a very young age, especially in Welsh language schools. So I think, you know, we grow up with it, really. We grow up with performing. You've also got Theatre Cluid funneling people into the art. You were in Junkyard, weren't you? I was in Junkyard, yes. Yeah, a musical. Yes, a musical. And yes, they did sing. But um, it was actors who sing, not, you know, no one was really trained. It was such a laugh. It was a great, great play. And and I wish that would have another life, really. I think it deserves it. I was wondering that, actually, because it's Jack Thorne, for people who don't know. And Jack Thorne, obviously, has has the Midas touch when it... When it comes... Well, when it comes to to TV, to to theatre, to everything... And I've wondered why it hasn't either come back to the West End or sort of been moved to a TV series or something. I know we'll have to ask Jack what's going on. He's probably so busy. Yeah. um... (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think it does deserve a second life. It's a beautiful story. Yeah. Now, if we're rooting through your back catalogue, I'm going to have to stop and say to you, I'm guessing you hear this a lot, that that you are in one of my favourite films. Oh, what would that be? That would be Pride. (laughs) I mean, it's Uh... just... Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. How quickly did you realise that that was great? You know, was it when you saw the script? Was it when you were making it? Was it when you sat down and watched the final version? Well, it's odd, isn't it? Again, when I read um, Maureen, when I read that part, again, I had that feeling I have to play this part. 
Um, again, I fell in love with, with the script, Stephen Barrowford's script. The strange thing was with that is that, of course, you have to fall in love with the character you're playing. And, of course, Maureen wasn't, wasn't that I nice. Guess. Um, she was also a widow and she was trying to cope with the death of her husband. But she was homophobic and she was um, narrow-minded. Um, and when the sort of fallout of the film came out and no one liked Maureen, mm-hmm. I actually was quite upset. <laughs> but then, you know, of course you're not meant to like it. In the actual story, nobody objected. So they had to make of a character that did, you know, yeah. to give the film some tension. But the filming of it was a total joy. You know, anything ensemble cast like that, like, like Men Up, like Pride, like sex education, is always just a joyful experience. It's not like going to work. It's just, you just realise how fortunate you are to do a job you love when you work on things like that. Yeah, that's interesting because Maureen is isolated within the village, but it also means that she, most of her scenes are just with one person. She's not in any of the big, you know, yes, show-stopping I... scenes in Pride. And I wonder <laughs> if that is a disappointment or whether it actually turns out to be a good thing because... In many ways, I bet those things are a nightmare to, to, to oh get Oh, my God, through. no, I was gutted. I was gutted. I couldn't go on all those big marches and the big concerts they had and everything. My house was the only house in that little Welsh village that we actually filmed the interior of the house. So most of my stuff was done right at the beginning of the film. I had my two sons and I have a few lovely scenes with Bill Nye. Yeah, but yeah she's very isolated. And I, you know, I do feel for Maureen. I do feel for her. She's um, back in the eighties. You know, who knew how to express themselves? And right. um, yeah, there's a sadness to her. And obviously, you have to try and find the humanity in everybody that you play, and you have to understand them. So you do have a love for them, even even though sometimes they're not very evolved human beings. To, to bring up your sons alone after your husband's been killed yeah. in a small Welsh mining village. You have to be tough as nails. I think you're spot on with Maureen. I think she's really interesting because she is... There, there is stuff to admire in there, but also there are things that you just think, yeah. oh, Maureen, for God's sake. I think she's just very lonely, you know, and when lonely people get defensive, they become more lonely, you know? So uh, I think that's Maureen's downfall, really. <laughs> Can I also ask you about family tree? Oh, my God, you can indeed. You're bringing up all the joyful shows, Hannah. <laughs> HBO series by Christopher Guest, and including, you yeah. know, Michael McKean. Willard. Michael McKean. What a show. What's it like to audition for Christopher Guest? Oh, my, well, first audition was just a camera, um, you know, in a, in, a, in a small room in London. And you had to make up a joke. And you had to talk about, I was from Moldova, so I had to talk a little bit about how I met my husband. And then the second time I met him in person, and I am an enormous Christopher Guest fan. I could tell you reams of dialogue from <laughs> Waiting for Guffman or Best in Show. I mean, I don't think I've ever been a starstruck in my life. And then when I heard Michael McKean was playing my husband, it was just like, <laughs> I actually jumped so high when I got the job. I think I sort of injured myself a little internally. <laughs> my knees were up to my ears. I, honestly, we turn up for work, there'd be two pages of script, they put two cameras on us and then they just, they would just let us improvise. 
if I could work like that every day of my life, I would. I used to wake up in the morning and go, yes, I get to do this again today. <laughs> Absolutely loved it. Get it, it didn't go to a second series. I would have adored that, yeah, but I never really got over the starstruck thing with, with Christopher Guest. I couldn't quite believe I was working with him throughout the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can imagine. We love Christopher Guest on this podcast. In fact, we watched Waiting for Government not that long ago. Brilliant. Oh, oh my, my goodness. Corky, what a <laughs> performance. Yeah, it's one of my favourites for sure. I just I adore it. If I'm ever feeling a little down, I'll, I'll watch that. I'll just watch Oh, if you know if things aren't going well in my career I watch Waiting for Government and instantly feel better about it <laughs> you work with some other real comedy legends in fact there's a scene in uh in Guesthouse Paradiso where you are with Rick Mayle, Aid Edmondson your character's married to Simon Pegg I mean there's all the big yeah. names in that scene as well I know why aren't I more famous Hannah why aren't I a big Hollywood star yet <laughs> <laughs> I sometimes think it's better not to be. I don't know. I don't, Maybe. I don't, Maybe. When I meet actresses <laughs> that have just been working just pretty consistently and making excellent yeah. stuff for the past 30 years, I think. About this time last year, I interviewed Ruth Sheen. She'd never done a, a podcast interview before. And I just thought, she's got it totally right. She's late 60s, potentially. And she's still working really consistently. And yeah. she's not got the pressure to... Do stuff with her face, or do you know what I yeah, mean? Exactly. Or, there is that, Hannah. There is that. Some of the more extreme that stuff. expense. Yeah, yeah. It's a funny thing transitioning uh, to an older age as an actress because there's always a record of it. You know, there's always a record of it when you looked younger. That's so you know with HD as well. You know, when, when yeah. you see you go and do a, an extra day recording on a bit of film and they haven't graded it yet. It's you know that's quite shocking. When you see your face is six foot by six foot on a screen, warts and all, you know, but then you just got to like, okay, that's just life. That's just getting older. Yeah. What's the alternative? Well, exactly. (laughs) Your daughter's an actress. And I wonder, in watching her career start to take off, can you see that things have changed since you were a young actress? Does it feel different or does it feel same old, same old? Do you know what? I would love to report that it has changed, but I don't know that it has changed that much. There's lots of sort of stuff, especially in Wales at the moment, surfacing about bullying in work. Lots of people are coming forward about that. I think the attitude towards women who've had babies and then sort of get ignored afterwards is very prevalent still. I don't think things have changed that much. Obviously, with stuff like intimacy coaches and the sex side of it, absolutely, that's come on leaps and bounds. But I think it has got a long way to go. I really do. And I think people need to write more parts for all women, but especially women who are in their 50s and 60s and 70s. We're far more interesting. We've lived a lot longer, you know. Yeah. And what tends to happen then is that you get, reach my age and you get, you know, you're a consultant or a commissioner or your job is the first thing and the person comes second. Whereas with something like Men Up, when you see a part like Teresa, you jump at it because it's quite rare to get a person, an actual person first, you know. But she's, my daughter Lori is, um, she's turned her hand at directing and writing and she's just won many awards for her first film, which is called Harry. It's been shown in... Uh, 
San Francisco at the beginning of the year. And that's the story about a young mum who's got two kids and is struggling, you know. And, yeah, I'm, I'm intensely proud of my daughter, yeah. Oh, well done, her. Yeah. Can I ask you what else you've got on the horizon? Is there anything else that you can tell us that's coming up? I can't really because yeah. <laughs> at the moment there's nothing on the horizon. I start the new year this year with an absolute clean slate. This year I've been I've been working solidly, if I say, for the past five or six years. And this year I haven't worked since April. And it's it's been really nice, you know, just <laughs> Just to breathe a little and to have a little space and to think where I want to go next. And yeah, so I know what kind of stuff I'd like to do. So I guess watch this space and hopefully I get a bit choosier as well as I get older, I think. Yeah. A couple of years ago, I interviewed Amelia Bullmore and she said that she had nothing in her diary for the first time in in such a long time. And she was like, it's great. I might just take a whole year off. Interestingly, about two months later, we went into lockdown. So in many ways, right. the fact that she'd had nothing in her diary was probably well. Lockdown, quite good. Ironically, was one of busy, one of my busiest times. I think it was July. I flew off to Bulgaria to do a horror movie called Pray for the Devil. I was praying <laughs> then. It looked really bizarre, but yeah, I worked pretty much consistently through lockdown. Very odd. Did a season of Cobra as well in Manchester. Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, sex education was still going on. So, yeah, it was um, pretty full on. So now I'm having my lockdown yeah. <laughs> 2023. Oh, excellent. There's so many things I could have asked you about in Line of Duty. You've been in so yeah. much great stuff, Lisa. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you for your time. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you. And to you too, darling. Have a lovely time. Hello, I'm joined on the Zoom by adventurer and author Robin Davison. Robin, hello. Hello, Mickey. Now, right off the bat, I have to say that that descriptor doesn't do you justice. And to be honest, I was tempted to just go with absolute phenomenon. I don't know how you feel about that. <laughs> AP, <laughs> just as a little bit of background for listeners, I'm sure many of you will know Robin as the woman who in 1977, age 27, tracked 1,700 miles across the Western Australian desert with a dog diggity and four camels. If they've not read your book, Tracks, then they've probably seen the 2013 film of the same name, even though not quite the same adventure, I don't think. Sure. Now, Robin, that journey was intended as a, in your own words, deeply private act. Didn't really work out that way, did it? No, it didn't. It it sort of continues to... um... To expand, it's most peculiar because it did start really as a very private, personal thing that I wanted to do. And I honestly didn't think anyone would be interested. Um, so when it suddenly hit the front pages of newspapers all around the world at the end, towards the end of the trip, I was completely unprepared. And then later on, when publishers asked me to write a book, and I had no intention of writing about her or taking notes along the way, um, I thought, well, if I write a book, it'll be like throwing a bone to the dogs for them. People can focus on the book, and I'll be left to it. 
course, then the, yeah, and the book turned into a huge bestseller, and so it went. Yeah, and that incredible adventure across the desert was more than 45 years ago. Oof. How long did it take you to adapt back into the real world? I'm using very, very heavy inverted commas mm. around real world there. Real world, yeah. yes. Well, and in some ways, coming back from the desert was much more difficult and, and longer as a process than going into it. I think I was, the journey was nine months. I was pretty much on my own for most of that. And your brain just changes when you're walking 20 miles a day, getting rid of all the muck in your head. The brain just turns into something different. And something like two weeks after the end of the journey, I had to be in New York City. Uh, I'd never been in Australia at that time. And I remember walking down the streets of New York, thinking, I am the last sane person on earth. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Maybe. But of course, it, as I said, you know, our minds change in relation to our mind. And when you spend nine months on your own in the desert, your mind is going to alter. And so it was very difficult to sort of come back into the real world because I saw it as sort of the Yeah, did the time in the desert feel sort of more real to you? Ultimately, yes, because that immersion, that profound connection between self and environment, it is so true to our nature, I suppose, true to our what we actually are, which is animals immersed in, in nature. Um, yeah. And the world we've created, of course, distances us more and more and more. There's so many gorgeous lines in your new memoir, Unfinished Woman, but one that particularly struck me was you were talking about the drama that we create with architecture and we seem to see the landscape as background, whereas for you, Mm. and I think I feel the same, that the drama of what nature has already provided is always going to blow me away a little bit more. Yes, I think so. But we can't constantly be in distance from that awareness. Yeah, totally. Now then, I realise that this is sort of an impossible question, so apologies in advance. But do you think if you were in your 20s today, you would and actually could still make that journey? Absolutely not. I mean, you could make the journey physically, but it would be a completely transformed experience. There'd be social media, there'd be more people, the landscape itself has changed, uh-huh. there's much more barriers, fences, boundaries, borders, huge pressure to always be contemplable. Yes. What was wonderful for me at that time was being able to and allowed to disappear. Um, and it's a wonderful, wonderfully liberated thing because it really is then just you and it. That's it. Yeah. And there was a young woman the other day. She just recently she'd taken through and she said that she put it on Instagram. I said, Why did you do that? And she said, Well, I felt I had to, I felt a blue that's quite sad, isn't it? I do feel there's mm. this thing unless unless it's on Instagram or social media, it didn't happen. It just didn't exist. 
there's a removal. We're removing ourselves from the actual experience by reducing it to a photograph. Truly. Mm. There's another phrase that I think I will carry with me forever. I think it applies to this. And you say, no one can live too far outside the cliches of their time. And you're talking. It's true. Yeah, it's talking in several different contexts because it punctuates the text a couple of times about... Um like particularly with your mum that she couldn't escape the fact she was going to be a 50s housewife even though in the end it killed her and we're going to get to that Mm. and like for you Mm. the ability to do that trip came with the freedom of the 60s and 70s and that kind of belief that you could do anything yes yes it was a terrific I am so grateful a that I had a country childhood and b that I was a teenager the 68 to 70 it was such an important time to be young and it just allowed us to experiment and then of course it started to close up after that. But indeed in the late 60s, early 70s it was um, the zeitgeist of the time really had a huge effect on what I, what I did and what I thought I could do because everyone was doing crazy things. <laughs> I don't know that everyone was doing that, Robin. Come on now. <laughs> Maybe not quite that. <laughs> but it was certainly the mood was of experimentation, pushing the boundaries, finding out what you were capable of, finding out what life really was about. Let's talk about your new memoir, Unfinished Woman, in which you explore the impact of your mum's suicide when she was in her mid-40s, and when you were just mm. 11. The writing of mm. this book has haunted you for decades, hasn't it? I mean, quite understandably, been very difficult to write. It has. I mean, haunting is a good word, really, Um, (laughs) because I haven't wanted to write about my wife. I hate writing in a first-person pronoun. Men are such a slippery, um, morally confusing form. People think it's easy, but it's, I think it's the most difficult. Mm, I agree with you. Mm. And so I wouldn't ever have chosen to do that. And also, I've never thought about my mum from the day she suicided to when I was in my 40s, sort of approaching time, but that she died. I honestly didn't give her a self. It was actually just being erased from memory and from the world. And then I was living in London. Um, I was under quite a lot of stress and pressure anyway, which must have contributed. But I started remembering shreds of music from my childhood. That was the first thing, these bits of song that we were a very musical family. Prior to that, I had thought that I had very few memories of childhood, and also I wasn't interested in looking back. And then slowly these musical phrases and musical memories brought up other memories with spasm, really. And it really was as if she was haunting me and saying, you've got to give me a voice. It was sort of like that. And so I started taking notes and just thinking about it. Um, but everything I wrote didn't feel quite right. So a ton of stuff was gone in the bin. This book. And then finally, I just gave up. So I wrote an essay. Uh, it was really an essay about memoir. It's such a slippery form. 
and it was about why this particular memoir could never be written. And I said it off to the agent. He said, you're mad, this is the beginning <laughs> So I was sort of stuck then. Um, you know, I had huge inner resistance to it for all sorts of reasons. But it just accumulated over 20 years of note-taking, um, traveling to three different countries, having lots of different homes. So when finally it came time to actually write the book, pull the book together, it was like some ghastly 3D jigsaw. Yeah. You said there about giving your mum a voice and how she was demanding that you gave her that voice. And suicide obviously still has this huge impact on people's lives. I've been affected by it. I know a lot of people who have been affected. And the stigma has not disappeared completely at all. But the stigma around suicide is so much less these days than when your mum, Gwen, took her own life. And that meant that no one really talked about her or what had happened or, like, how depressed she'd been, right? Yes. And it was a, it was really a, a brutal era, mm. say, the 50s, for women, um, possibly for men as well after the war, a lot of damaged people. Of course. But for women, it was um, kind of smothering, really. So if, you, if you're a woman with any kind of ability or longing, to be something more than a housewife. And there were real strictures. It wasn't just psychological. They couldn't sign checks without them. They couldn't buy a house without them. So she was, in the last two or three years of her life, profoundly ill with depression. And then when she died, I wasn't allowed to go to the funeral. I was sent away to live with the arms. Um, and my mother was literally never mentioned again. It was like she had been just wiped, wiped off the case of you. And old friends I made hadn't been invited to the funeral because my father was so ashamed of the stigma from his wife's suicide. So yeah, it was a, it was a social faux pas. That's for sure. <laughs> I mean, that's one way of putting it. And that's a very general yeah, way of putting really. it. Yeah. Do you feel closer to her for writing the book? I feel closer to her from the work of memory. Yeah. The actual writing of the book is a secondary thing that takes a whole other kind of skill. I feel that I have given her a sort of voice, or at least she's not now totally invisible. Um... But yes, the work of memories was very hard, and uh, I'm glad it's done. Yeah, yeah. I think it, I think what came out of it is not that I'll ever get it, but what I did realize is that we loved each other, we liked each other, and she was a good enough. She gave me enough love in that first eight years to get me through. That's amazing. I think that's a real. There's a real generosity there as well, I think, Robin. I also love that the title Unfinished Woman doesn't just apply to Gwen, to your mum, but also to yourself. And this book is a really, I, I cannot stress this enough, really candid exploration of the many selves that make a life. And I wondered, yeah. with the title, 
do you think we're ever finished in our lifetime? No, I don't think so. It would be awful. It's an ongoing process forever. Also, it's an incredible investigation of memory, how fallible and ever-changing it is, mm-hmm. and yet how we, we still mm-hmm. rely on it for those versions of ourselves and, and how we feel that the past has treated us. It is one of the mm-hmm. most resonant looks at memory I've ever come across. It was just astounding oh, to me. Thank you. And I, I guess that means that I see it the same way that you do, because obviously yes. the whole point is it's quite subjective. Yes. I wanted to ask a question about a specific memory for you. I wondered, when you think about your journey across the desert, that life-changing journey across the desert, is it the photos taken by Rick Smolin for National Geographic or something mm. else that initially comes to mind? Great question. Look, I... I deeply resented the photos initially for the first many years, really. I mean, I adore Rick the photographer, but the photos were, um, they alienated me from her journey, in a sense, because the image is so powerful. And what I felt was that the whole point of the journey for me was to be the subject of me. And what those photos did was, again, turn me into an object. Oh. And he was a bit in love with me, so and we could sort of tell that in the photos. They're exquisite photos, they're absolutely beautiful. But I, when I first saw them, I said, Rick, you can make me look like a very model. That's not how I perceive myself. So there are all those strange um, complexities in what you do and how it's recorded. And now I'm less. I look at the photos and I just think they're beautiful and they bring back certain memories. But I do try, it's almost like there's two bandwidths of that. So there's the one that's very accessible, which is through the photos or talking about. And then I, I can put myself back there as it actually was. Yeah. So then that's like my personal memory store. And then, so it's a very, it's a very complex, um, yeah, it's not simple. I also wondered if you felt closer to you for writing the book. Tracks or Unfinished Woman? Unfinished Woman? Yeah. yeah. Well, it's also a good question. I know a lot more about myself and there is something about the act of writing and making, really working with the writing. It's not just about taking the journey. I mean, the process of really refining the text. It's nothing like therapy. I hate the idea <laughs> that writing a book is like therapy. It's just the opposite. It's just <laughs> bloody hard work. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, there is something about that process that, in a way, does bring you closer to or more aware of how you are. I think you're very. Oh, brave sounds really patronising and that would be the last thing I would want to do to anyone but particularly you. But I think you're very bold in how deep you go and how raw you go and how you share that with us, the reader. Yes. Well, I can't see why not, really. If it is to be a memoir and to reflect the life, my mother's life and my other people, or rather them in my memories, it's not really them, it's them in my consciousness. To hold back what's uncomfortable or might be a bit hard on the ego, 
there wouldn't be a wouldn't be an end spell. Absolutely. Which isn't to say that there aren't things left out. That's a choice, an aesthetic choice. We still have to make this book hang together. So you're constantly making choices about what's in, what's out, what's hidden, what's referred to. And that's the work of writer. And beautifully written as well. Like I say, there are certain phrases that I'm like, oh, that that's going in the bank. I'm keeping that one. It was so resonant, <laughs> for sure. Oh, that's nice to know. <laughs> so Unfinished Woman is published by Bloomsbury and it's out now. Mm. Robin, what's next? Are you settled? Will you ever be settled? Are you going to get a camel? What's going on? Uh, I'm certainly not going to get a camel. That is for sure. <laughs> um, look, I... I came back to Australia. I've been living, really commuting, I suppose, between London and India. My partner was in India. So it was a very restless life, which suited me. Uh, and coming back to Australia. But when he died, I sort of had to make a choice about where I'd fetch up. And Australia was a fairly arbitrary choice, really. But I knew I had to sit down somewhere and pull the book together. Uh-huh. So I bought an old tumble-down stone house in Victoria. And so there were two projects going on at the same time. One was building the garden, sort of putting the house back together and putting the book together. Um, and that took them 10 years. But now I've done all of those things. The garden's gorgeous, the house is lovely, the book is done, and I'd like to leave them all behind. But, of course, the problem with writing a book is that you can't leave it behind because you have to talk about it. Exactly, exactly. I always like like memoirs, like you said, they're very slippery and I think they are so hard and they are usually interesting because something difficult and painful has happened, so you get it all down and then you go, Thank goodness that's out. And then people go, Can we just get you to relive that? Can we just <laughs> exactly. 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 And you know, realistically, that's going to go on for another year. Well, that really is tied up in a bundle. I don't know. I start training. I really don't know. Or go and study mycologies. Yeah, I think there's more adventures. I can't see you hanging up your boots just yet. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Robin, I'm sorry for, you know, invasively asking you more questions about what you've quite clearly written down, but thank you so, so much for chatting with me. It's a pleasure, really. Thanks very much. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we don our sparkliest trouser suit in celebration of all things women's sport and ofs. I wrote this on Tuesday, so Jen from the past can't tell you who won BBC Sports Personality of the Year because she doesn't know. But you can now Google it and smile fondly on my behalf, lest that winner have been Mary Earps, who I keep talking about. But also, she had a tram in her hometown of Nottingham named after her last week, and she told the BBC it was a, and I quote, pinch me moment. I mean... I would genuinely love to have a bus in Harwich named after me. So it's something for us all to aspire to. What I'm saying is she's already a winner in my eyes. In further international footballing news, the Arnold Clark Cup has been cancelled next year because of a clash with the UEFA Women's Nations League finals. 
Unfortunate if you're an England fan, since we won't be in that. We failed to qualify after finishing behind Netherlands in our group. And we have won the last two Arnold Clark Cups. I've got nothing else to say about this. Yes, I'm bitter. Let's move on to some huge news in football last week, as in the Premier League, which is that Rebecca Welsh will become the first ever woman to referee a Premier League fixture this weekend, as she presides over Fulham v Burnley. The 40-year-old has already refereed in the men's championship, having begun her career back in 2010. Alongside her, Sam Allison will become the first black referee to preside over a Premier League match in 15 years when he oversees Sheffield United versus Luton on December the 26th. The last black man to officiate a top flight fixture was Uriah Rennie back in 2009 and was also the first black man to referee a top flight fixture back in 1997. The last non-white referee in the Premier League was Jarnell Singh, who retired in 2010. When you think about the diversity in the average Premier League team, that is a really, really shocking statistic. So this is part of the Football Association's plans to recruit 50% more referees from historically underrepresented groups. Wokery gone mad. Uh, That was announced back in July. It's really big and it's great news, but the Premier League has to get its house in order. This is against a backdrop of comments such as those made by some irrelevant prick a couple of weeks ago, you know who I mean, but also leapt upon by a large part of the fan base. There's also been a 65% rise in reports of discriminatory behaviour at football matches during the 2022-23 season to the organisation Kick It Out. Racism makes up almost half of all reports, while there's also been a 400% rise in reports of sexism and misogyny. Additionally, the endless controversy around VAR, the video assistant referee, is making the referee's job even more contentious in any number of ways. And I've got to be honest, I worry for these guys. I really hope that the FA and the Premier League are equally committed to taking a firm stance against discrimination in the game. Okay, so on to some news from rugby, which is the announcement that the Irish alcohol brand Guinness will take up sponsorship of the women's Six Nations when TikTok's current deal expires in two years' time. This has been hailed by tournament chief executive Tom Harrison as a defining moment for rugby. The women's game is the biggest growth engine for rugby and through this partnership, Guinness will help accelerate this, he said. We don't know how much the deal is for, but Guinness has sponsored the men's tournament since 2019. So this shows real faith in the potential of the women's game, which has come a long, long way in that time. Some more good news, which came up a couple of weeks ago, but didn't get a mention at the time. Emma Raducanu is due to make her comeback in Auckland in January after being handed a wild card. She only played nine matches this year, hampered by injury and subsequent surgeries and has slipped down to 296 in the WTA rankings. Now that is too low for automatic entry into the Australian Open, which starts on January the 14th, and we've yet to hear whether or not Tennis Australia will offer her a wild card. But we can look forward to seeing her back in action when the tournament in Auckland starts on January the 1st. That's all from me this week, and I'll be back in the new year to talk about this and much more besides. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Why, Jen? Why? (laughs) If by that you mean what did we watch this week, well, the answer to that question (laughs) is 
This week we watched 1998 Shakespeare in Love, directed by John Madden of Best Exotic Marigold Hotel fame and written by Mark Norman and Tom Stoppard. The film stars Gwyneth Paltrow, who picked up an Oscar for her role as Viola, and a relatively unknown Joseph Fiennes, a.k.a. Big Sexy Gareth Southgate, <laughs> as a Big Willie S, the bard himself, in the fictional story of the story behind Romeo and Juliet. Besides these two, the film has quite the cast, Doesn't including it? an incredible one. Jeffrey Rush, Colin Firth, Ben Affleck, Imelda Staunton, Tom Wilkinson, Simon Callow, Judy Dench, who also won an Oscar for less than 10 minutes of screen time, and um, Martin Clones. So, <laughs> you know. The others are great, though, Jen. The others are great. <laughs> they are. Bit of trivia for you. Dench is one of just 11 people to have won an Oscar for less than 20 minutes of screen time. Rated or dated alumnus Alan Arkin and Kim Bassinger are two of the others for Little Miss Sunshine and LA Confidential, respectively. Bit more trivia for you. Julia Roberts was originally cast for the role of Viola. She wanted Daniel Day-Lewis to play her love interest. Babes, don't we all? But he was busy at the time. <laughs> Roberts apparently read with a number of other actors who were suggested for the part, but she didn't like any of them. According to Madden, Colin Firth initially auditioned for the role of Shakespeare and, this is a quote, credits himself with being the last Romeo she saw before bolting. Alas, Roberts <laughs> quit and the rest, excruciating acceptance speech included, is history. Well, a lot of it isn't actually history. <laughs> like the references to the uh, tobacco plantations in Virginia, a colony that did not exist at the time. The colony of Virginia was established in 1606, 13 years after the film was set. There are heaps more liberties taken with history, but maybe let's look at the plot. William Shakespeare is a jobbing player and playwright. In 1590s London, he works for Philip Henslow, who owns the Rose Theatre on the banks of the Thames, a rival of the Curtain Theatre owned by Richard Burbage. He's a bit of a shagger, that Shakespeare, but he's sort of lost his mojo and indeed creative flourish at the same time because aren't the two basically interchangeable? His quill is limp, Jen. I was going to make a joke about ink and whatever but then i realized i was conflating two different things which is a, a dip in your wick and your ink so i just thought i'll leave it but thank you mickey for introducing uh, <laughs> <laughs> it bows remember she should curtsy or the other way around this general malaise has rendered him incapable of finishing his comedy romeo and ethel the pirate's daughter which is unfortunate because henslow owes a lot of money to fenniman and is in desperate need of a hit Elsewhere, Viola de Lesseps, the daughter of a wealthy merchant, is a big fan of the theatre and thinks women could do better than men if they were allowed to play their own roles. So she sticks on a tash, pretends to be Thomas Kent and auditions for a role as uh, a man, landing the part of Romeo. But not before Shakespeare has tracked him slash her down to his slash her house and seen untashed Viola and promptly fallen in love still. You'd never make the connection between the two, would you? <laughs> Sad times for Shakespeare, because Viola is betrothed to Lord Wessex, who plans to whisk her off to the colonies in exchange for some cold hard cash from her dad, pending approval from Queen Elizabeth I. She begrudgingly gives it, but, you know, she can tell Viola's heart is elsewhere, takes a woman to know, etc. Not just that her heart is elsewhere, she can tell that she fucked someone. She's had a She's wick plucked. in her ink or, yeah. <laughs> or She's whatever. She's been thoroughly yeah. quilled. She has, For indeed. Sure. Right up her. 
There's loads Sorry. more. A bet, a murder, a big reveal, some arrests, and generally an amalgamation of a bunch of Shakespearean plots, etc. But the show must go on, and on it goes, to rapturous applause, but can Viola escape her destiny and live happily ever after? No, she's a woman. Who cares? <laughs> this film was huge. Shite. It made... $289 million from a budget of $25 million, earning 13 Oscar nominations, of which it won seven, along with a whole host of other awards. Although there was something of a controversy around the film's Best Picture Oscar, with producer and big fuckhead Harvey Weinstein... Weinstein? <laughs> Harvey Weinstein, I'll probably. do, Jen. <laughs> More apt, yeah. Harvey Weinstein accused of leading a media offensive and a bullying campaign to ensure his production took the gong over main contender Saving Private Ryan. Nonetheless, the film was a critical success, with even Roger Ebert stating that he was, and I quote, carried along by the wit, the energy and a surprising sweetness. I think I've seen this a few times and I think I liked it. Hannah, when did you first discover that you hated this film? <laughs> I was in Australia when it came out. I, I, I didn't go at the cinema that much in Australia, although I did go and see Saving Private Ryan there. I remember watching it, and actually I, I do remember watching it because it was the first time that anyone I knew had a DVD player. <laughs> so I would say it was about 2000, something like that, and we watched it on DVD, and I hated it. In fact, the only truly memorable thing was that I was like, ooh, a DVD player, because they were really expensive at that point. Yeah, they were, I remember that. Mick, what about you? Do you? I presume you've seen this before. Yeah, yeah. I went to see it at the cinema and I used to own it on VHS. I liked this film a lot when it came out and I've watched it quite a few times. How confused was your mum during this film, though? Knowing that my daughter was coming home from her dad's yesterday and probably would have slept in the car the whole way, I was prepared for a late night last night, so I actually watched it on Saturday afternoon by myself. It's probably for the best. I started watching this on Friday, got about halfway through it, and I was just, I hated it so much I had to take a little break. And then a couple of things happened, I got a bit distracted. And I remembered last night at 10 o'clock that I hadn't finished watching it, and I went back to watch it, and the time available to finish watching it had expired, and I had to pay to watch it again. And I don't think I've ever hated myself more that in that moment that I paid twice to watch this show. I feel like your response is, is over-the-top vehemence. Yeah, I think I'm going to start with the question because I think, Mickey, you and I are probably going to come out in a sort of fairly similar position on this film. Yeah. Hannah, what did you hate so much about it? Well, the first time I saw it, I hated it because it was, like, just stupid. And I thought that it, it was historically just, like, ridiculous and that sort of stuff annoyed me. Great. But actually now I've come round to the idea that it's Shakespeare is stupid. Agreed. <laughs> Therefore, it statement. sort of works. It works in a meta way. Yeah. It does work. Oh, you know, I'm standing behind a tree. No one can see me. All of that stuff. Watching it this time, I, I hated it for a whole different reason, which is it's just this really shit celebration of someone fucking around behind their wife's back. I really hate it. Ooh. I just find that the idea that this is supposed to be romantic when he's got a wife and kids at home, which is particularly when it is produced by a man like Harvey Weinstein. I just, I just hate it. I just find it really horrible. I think it's really sexist. I think it's a really sexist film. And then it does this, it does this great thing at the end where like, oh, it's fine. Nobody minds. It's fine. She gets to be an actress. Nobody minds, which is just so historically daft. Yeah, I hated it. And I think Gwyneth Paltrow is terrible in it. Genuinely terrible. I think the conceit 
the idea behind it is really quite clever. I do think it's very meta because Shakespeare's comedies and like Hannah has just very well explained those kind of like, oh, uh, the mixed identities and like dressed as my yeah. brother and all of that. And you're like, really? Would that work? So it does play on that. It's a romantic film. It's meant to be a romantic comedy. And I also do not think it's very romantic, Hannah, because we are very much on the same page of grand gestures and cheating. And I got cross this time at how easily they throw away the fact that Shakespeare is married. And I think particularly because she's played by Lisa Tarbuck in, in um, yeah, Upstart Crow. I was like, how dare you be like that about Lisa? Lisa? Liza? I don't know. But stop it. What I actually think it did really well that I noticed more this time and made me angry, but I think they've captured it really well, is there aren't very many female characters in it at all, but it's set in an, a time where female characters, women weren't allowed on the stage. Viola does get to go on stage and it is like, would they have not noticed she's a woman? All of that again, but that falls into the Shakespearean conceit. But at the end, basically, he gets to go back to being buff about Bill and she is literally has to marry a man that we have seen throughout this film be an absolute monster and not be a good guy. So I think it actually captures what a woman's lot at that time yeah. was quite well. I also think that is absolutely true. And although it is extremely laboured, Elizabeth I gets to be like, you know, the boss bitch, which mm-hmm. of course she is. And she does it very well and she puts everyone in their place and she's like, oh, whatevs, and completely withering. And also Viola gets like, it is stupid and it wouldn't have happened, but the character is like she's quite feisty and she goes after this thing and she does this stuff that is very much out of sync with what the acceptable like social code of the time was. Mm. So I think that there are only really three female characters and two of them, at least, are quite kind of, I don't Breaking know. Breaking gender norms. Yeah, they're yeah, gender exactly. non-conforming for the time. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think, I get what you're saying about the celebrating being a shagger or whatever and, and cheating on his wife, but like realistically, again... That is almost certainly how it would have been in the time, and it wouldn't really have been yeah, like that big a deal. Being historically accurate about other stuff, so you, you can't you can't say that that's how that is. No, but the things they that they haven't been historically accurate about are things like the plantation and stuff like that, which they've obviously done because they thought, well, like it's ten years or whatever. Who's going to notice? People won't really care. Probably quite a lot of people don't really know very much about this stuff anyway. So I, I see what you're saying, but like the things that they've been historically inaccurate about are kind of like minor. I feel like they had to nod to Shakespeare having a wife because it is something that we know about him. Yeah. But the rest of this character is fictionalized in the sort of composite of like. Shakespearean plots right and and lines from Shakespeare have made up this composite Shakespeare very much an in inverted commas character so yeah but they also know that people would be like hey wasn't he married so they've had to put that line in and it does feel really throwaway and disrespectful but they had to mention it I guess and also it is kind of well known that Shakespeare did shag around right it's mentioned in Upstart Crow it's certainly alluded to in Upstart Crow that he wrote sonnets for people that weren't his missus well, the truth is, nobody really knows exactly. that much about, about Shakespeare at that point. But what I'm saying is, I mean, this is the 1990s, and it absolutely is a reflection of the 1990s, not of the time it's set. I mean, it, it follows in that tradition, that sort of long tradition of, of Shakespeare being entirely removed from his family, like being utterly dismissed, because she's massively inconvenient, Yes, Anne Hathaway, because she's like she was also like eight years older than him. Nice cottage. I, I hate that line. If you look at how she's portrayed, it's largely portrayed because she was pregnant. 
when they got married. It's largely portrayed historically that she in some way trapped him. She got herself knocked up by this young bloke. It's very passive, the description, isn't it? She got pregnant. Uh, Really? How was that? (laughs) So this just follows into this tradition of that she is an inconvenience. And I appreciate that, like, in recent years, there has been, like, a reassessment of that part of Shakespeare's life, including, like, in Upstart Crow, but amongst academics saying how the death of Hamnet affected him. And then there's the book Hamnet, which is now a play. And I'm absolutely sure that in 50 years' time, they'll look back at that reassessment and say, what were people trying to say about now by focusing on that part of Shakespeare's life? You know, they were trying to put him back within the unit of his family, which is an utter reflection of how we feel in the 2020s about people. So you have to argue that this is how people felt about his family in the 1990s, that they were inconvenient, that Shakespeare needed to be running around fucking in order to be interesting. Talking about upstart crime, undoubtedly what has affected this for me is that there are two things subsequent to this. Bill, the horrible histories version of Shakespeare's life, and Upstart Crow, like the BBC series, both of which are, are, are hilariously funny. And this just did not make me laugh, so it didn't even work as a comedy for it me. It does make me laugh. I think it's quite sweet and funny. Yeah, yeah. and I, I can't disagree with anything you've just said. I don't want to disagree with anything you've just said. You bang on, but I just don't think that's the point of the film. And sometimes we have to go, that's not the point of this film. But if I liked the film enough, if the point of the film for me was anything else, none of that stuff would... With bother me, I laughed once and once only, and that's when Shakespeare's like really earnestly telling people about the end, and they're all listening rapt. And then he says, uh, and then she goes to an apothecary, and Tom Wilkinson goes, "Oh, that's me." That <laughs> made me laugh. The rest of it, n- not at well, all. So for me, quite the cast is a bit of an understatement. Like the cast is fucking incredible, yeah, really and is. I think that. Even Martin Clunes isn't that bad. Like it's, I, I think that it, the ensemble cast is phenomenal, and I think they do a really good job. And actually, I laughed a lot more than I expected to watching this. I didn't think I was going to enjoy it as much as I did because I thought I was going to find Gwyneth Paltrow so interminably irritating, which I did. I don't think she's too bad. I just can't get past her being Paltrow. I think it's she's <laughs> just I just can't. But. I thought like the rest of the cast was so good and it's they've got so many great comic actors in it as well that yeah. I just thought like... The cast of the fascia are in it basically, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do I think it deserves seven Oscars? Absolutely fucking not. Or, or even like any nominations? Absolutely not. Is it an all like, like throwaway Sunday afternoon film? Yeah, here it is. No, <laughs> no. And again, that undoubtedly will affect my opinion. The fact that this is, this is a, a much lauded, much sort of, Laureled is that a word? Let's, yeah, let's, use let's that have it. Film. We're talking about Shakespeare. Let's neologize. Yeah, obviously. I mean, I, I can say positive things about it. In fact, I think much as I was expecting him to be appalling, and I seem to remember him being appalling. I think Ben Affleck's really well cast yeah. because Mercutio is the swigging yeah, dick, yeah, and yeah. he plays the swigging dick in this, so he's really well cast. His English accent is not bad at all. Who doesn't like looking at Imelda Stormont? Who doesn't like looking at Joe Fiennes? You know how I feel about this. <laughs> I must say his role as the commander has made it harder to find him attractive. But I powered through. <laughs> I'm such a brave little soldier. I have one question that always bothers me in this sort of thing. And again, it's, you know me and like picking plot holes. But right. Oh, there's so many plot holes. <laughs> how is it that any woman in this period, or indeed any period pre-1960s, is able to 
just throw themselves into this extensive love affair and not get knocked up? It's a great question. I wondered that. There's a lot of banging goes on between those two and I was a bit like, uh, he's been putting his wick about, shall we say. So, uh, SDIs. You know, exactly. Uh, yeah, totally. Got to think about those SDIs. It's a good question. I can't answer that question. The film can't answer that question or even ask that question. I guess it happens over quite a uh, short period of time. So if indeed she did get knocked out, she'd probably just pass it off as Wessex's, right? I guess so, because that's going to happen. There were more of Gwyneth Paltrow's tits in it than I remembered. And I don't mean like she's got seven. I just mean they appeared a lot more throughout the film. What does John Webster call her? Bubbers or something Bubbies, I think he calls her. John Webster. Yeah. I love the John Webster character. That made me laugh as well. He's like, I like the bit where, where he cuts her head off or whatever. And it's like, you'll go far. <laughs> and they're like, oh, I did. <laughs> yeah. That little shit is the reason I had to read The Duchess of fucking Malfi when I was doing my A-levels. Yep. I think her tits were like quite a big story at the time. I seem to recall that there was uh, a lot of chat about it in the uh, tabloids of the day. Yeah, it did make me feel quite uncomfortable watching it. Well, because there's no need for them to like be no out, need. but also because it is a Weinstein production as well. It's Miramax and now the stories that have come out around that and and his pressuring of her. Yeah, yeah. I did feel, and maybe that made me a bit more tender towards... Gwyneth Paltrow as an actor in this because it sounds like the circumstances and the conditions were horrible. Yeah, I had sort of similar thoughts about it at the time, but not about her because I just, I just can't. Fair enough. We all have actors that we just can't. But I don't think she's bad. Like I think she's good in it. Notwithstanding, how have you not noticed? <laughs> she's, it's not that good a disguise. She quite rightly gets annoyed that he hasn't noticed when she's right in front of him. Yeah. I just find her really bland. I just find her really, really wishy-washy and bland. I think that's fair. It's quite sliding doors-esque, isn't it? It's just with less Grolsch. Uh, her English accent's better <laughs> in this than it is in sliding doors. Oh my God, I wish there'd been some Grolsch in it. <laughs> oh, it was so funny, that, that very subtle product placement. I'd like to go out and have lots of Grolsch. <laughs> Get wankered on Grolsch. That's also Wednesday, lads. <laughs> Who drinks Grosh? In the 90s, we were all at it. Yeah. I actually quite like some of the rendering of Shakespeare. Like when Mark Williams does his We Are Set in Fair Verona, I've absolutely messed up the quote, obviously. There's a sort of change whenever they're doing actual Shakespeare and they all deliver it really nicely. And, that you know, can't deny that whoever he was, whether he was one person or an amalgamation of writers or whatever, like there was some damn fine writing went on, even if his comedies were shit. Oh, agreed. I mean, don't get me wrong, I fucking love Shakespeare. Now, this has probably been one of the only years in my whole life since I was old enough to go to the theatre that I haven't watched some Shakespeare. Also, love the bit where Tom Wilkinson goes, oh, a dog! <laughs> <laughs> I like it when he's very excited about his hat. I do like Tom Wilkinson's <laughs> character. I was trying to find the exact words and I can't, but I have to say, that forever, Romeo and Juliet, the scene where she wakes up, and like finds him dead has been like entirely ruined for me by Lucy Punch doing it. This is that massive West Country accent. In Hot Fuzz, they have to go and see some Amdram and David Threlfall and her are playing Romeo and Juliet really badly. And it's just really funny. And she does like, she just wakes up and just does that whole, maybe some poison dust loiter here, but in a West Country accent. <laughs> and it's, it's really, really funny. Yeah. Maybe some poison dust loiter here. I've got to say as well, the fact that <laughs> yeah. it is, sort of spun around Romeo and Juliet and of course Lizzie Wan has that wager with Wessex 
that, that no playwright can render love kind of thing. And she's like, okay, there's a wager. And she makes him have that wager with Shakespeare slash he thinks it's Marlowe. So there's that wager. And then the fact that she says Romeo and Juliet has shown that, that a playwright can write about love. And I don't think Romeo and Juliet is a... It's not a great love story, is it? It's just it's sort of obsession and some boffin and they're very, very young and it's all very grand gestures rather than actual love. So no, I don't think it, it's a, it's a play that makes me quite angry <laughs> in the same way that Wuthering Heights now makes me angry because it's like, oh, this isn't healthy, guys. I agree. But in the same way as Twilight, bear with me. Uh, it's, <laughs> I know, uh... <laughs> angry enough, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the sort of adolescent kind of yearning thing, isn't yeah, it? And I, And it does that very well yeah and that's what it's supposed to be basically and is is that healthy no but like you know that kind of love that you have when you're an adolescent isn't very healthy like generally it is all a bit obsessive and and, you you know so i think shout out to our listeners who married their children sweet (laughs) (laughs) good luck to you well done (laughs) yeah and that obviously does sort of reflect the short time period that their love is going to be love in inverted commas is going to be allowed as well because she does have to you know she's very like i'm gonna have to marry wessex this isn't something that i can get out of because i love you you're married right we've covered that in two lines eight minutes ago and we've decided we don't care but also i'm basically married because there is nothing i can do about the situation so it's just going to happen and i actually quite like how matter of fact she is about that this is for now and then i'm just going to have to get on with my lot which is sad because that was the way women were treated and still are treated a lot of the time. But she is very like matter of fact. She's not histrionic about it. She's just like, yep, this is a thing. Let's enjoy it while we've got it. And then see you later, buddy. Yeah. Rupert Everett's really underused in Isn't this. He? In fact, I think Kit Marlowe's really underused in this, to be honest. But He's the wisest of everyone, I think. He has got the wisdom of of the world in a couple of lines. I do like that they kind of nod to the fact that maybe Shakespeare didn't write all his own plays by Marlowe giving him the ideas. And her. She gives him some ideas as well. Yeah. So then I shall ask the question, rated or dated? Or hated. (laughs) I think it's dated. It is dated. But I I liked it when it first came out. It's flawed. I still liked watching it. It It was all right. It was an all right way to pass a couple of hours. Yeah, dated. Yeah, I think if you compare it to, like I say, stuff that's being written now about Shakespeare or has been written subsequently, it's worse than all of them. And also, yeah, I think its principles are dated. Any association with Weinstein dates something now automatically, I feel. So, yeah, triple dated for me. (laughs) I don't think it's dated particularly, to be honest, and I didn't mind watching it. But I don't think it's rated particularly either. But for the purposes of this, I'm going to say rated. Fair. Like fucking hell, those Oscars, man. No. Yeah, can't get over that. Seven Oscars. Hollywood likes English films, doesn't it? You know, sort of English films that are also secretly American. (laughs) So it would be my pick for our first film back of 2024, which is going to be our second podcast back. But I I haven't picked one because it is a wasteland in January. (laughs) It really is. (laughs) So I am going to spend some time, do some digging, and we'll announce what we're watching in January. Happy Christmas. Merry Christmas, everyone. Every <laughs> Christmas, Christmas time is here.
standard issue for all women.